All right. Anybody been challenged by the things that they're learning out here? Listen, I've had the opportunity to talk to a good handful of you, and you got some good, good questions. I, I love it. I love the fact that you are thinking. Uh, I am going to – I see the first question. There's, if you don't know, if you haven't heard, if you're under a rock living somewhere, we're giving you the opportunity to ask whatever questions you want to ask. There are some index cards in the back and some pins. Uh, fill out – that little index card with your question or just come and hit me up either way and then they print out the questions here uh, for me and I'm just gonna address the first question here as my sermon as my message because I was gonna do it anyways how can we say God is all-powerful and loving when he can't or won't stop terrible things from happening that's a good question. I love it. It's the number one question I get, actually, when I'm out on the street. So that is my message. So I'm going to give you a little bit longer answer. Now, my message, typically for a question like this, is about two hours long. Usually, when I go to a secular university, I will lecture on this subject. It's called theodicy the problem of evil. So I will lecture in that setting for one hour, and then I will open it up for questions and answers for another hour from the faculty and the student body where they can just come up to a microphone and ask whatever question they want to ask. And once again, it's not the fact that I have all the answers because I really don't, but I know where to look. I've been around for 31 years as a Christian, so I know where to look and to find the answers. If you have your Bibles or your apps, swipe open to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and this really is the answer to the question. 2 Peter 3, 9, I will read it for you. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want you to consider this letter. I'm, I'm going to tone down this letter because we have some real little ones inside of our, our presence here, but I want you to consider uh, this letter because I think it is a gross charge against Christianity, and it's something that uh, we will all face sooner or later. The title of the letter is God is a Monster. And so the letter is written. It says, I've been taught since I was a little girl that God is love and a benevolent father. I've been trying to understand this in light of the explicit contradictions in these concepts. You see, man has been suffering ever since his inaugural visit to this earth. As soon as he arrived, he was haunted by wild animals, and he suffered starvation and dehydration. God just creates millions of innocent people, and then he puts them through all sorts of hardships and sufferings. People offer their prayers to you, God, and you respond by sending down thunder and lightning, famine and floods, horrendous plagues, contagious diseases, earthquakes, tsunamis, tempests, and in the end, death. Nice payoff 
nice answer to prayer, God. You don't seem to follow the norm. No human rights. It's not safe to walk down the street at night. We must keep every door locked and every window shut. Evil runs rampant in the streets, and there is no justice from crooked cops to paid-off judges. No one is to be trusted, not even you. Where are you when nearly 600 women are violated each day? How about the 200,000 children that are abducted each year? Where are you? Seriously, are you asleep? Don't you care? Can you hear them cry at night? Does it make you smirk? Perhaps it makes you smile. It's obvious you're too preoccupied to interject in the life of just 2,000 people today that will take their own life. And let's see if you're too busy to intercept me from taking mine. You are a monster, God, a hundred times over. How would you answer that? It's a powerful charge against Christianity, right? And I think this dramatic and moving account echoes some of our deepest apprehensions that we have about God. And sometimes when faced with this argument, it leaves us speechless, especially if the problem is not philosophical, but it's personal. If it's a personal problem. I had mentioned on Thursday night that I was debating, if you would, out in the open with this professor from Long Beach State. But when I was all finished, there was a 29-year-old female that came up to me, and she had this very question. And she worded it like this. If God is so loving and so powerful, why do the innocent suffer? So I gave my typical response first. My question was, why do you ask? And the reason why is because I'm not clairvoyant as much as I may look like. I have all the answers, and I know exactly what they're thinking. Her response was, I'm 29 years old. I have cancer. I've been given less than six months to live. My parents are both dead. I have no siblings. I have no boyfriend. And when I die, my name dies with me. And I said, ma'am, I think you're asking the wrong question. Do you realize that 150,000 people die every day? That's 54 million people will pass from time on into eternity today. Most of these people are planning for the future, but the future never comes knocking. Death does. How kind is God? to stamp eternity on your eyelids, that every moment you're awake and every moment you're asleep, all you think about is your mortality. You are not created for time, but for eternity. How kind is God? Because he hasn't warned all of these other people, but this is all you think about. And how kind is God to send me to you to tell you this? You're asking the wrong question. It's not why did the innocent suffer, but why have you been given a chance to repent and place your trust in Christ when not everybody has been given that chance? She began to weep. I gave her contact information for a pastor inside of her area, and I have no idea where she is at today. But this problem 
is not a problem with God. This charge against Christianity is not a charge that you need to be afraid of or ashamed of, that you need to back down from. What is the charge exactly? Well, you Christians say that God is all-loving and all-powerful. Well, if he was all-loving, wouldn't he care about all the evil and all the suffering that takes place? And if he was all-powerful, wouldn't he have the ability to stop these evil things from happening? Let me break it down even more. You guys are Christians. Why? Because you know that your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. You have sinned against a holy God, and you have surrendered to your Savior. And by doing that, you have surrendered to He alone who is good. All right? Keep that in mind. Imagine you're walking down an alley, and you see a boy abusing a really young girl in a horrific way. And if it was within your power to stop him from committing that heinous act, would you do it? Would you stop him? And the answer, of course, is yes. You don't need to be a Christian to come to that conclusion. You can be an atheist, and you would want to intervene. You could be a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, part of the Baha'i faith. Anybody right mind would stop that boy from committing that act. Okay, now wait a minute. If you're not good and you would intervene, where does that place God? Because he does not always intervene. So don't tell me your God is good. Or, you know, maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's actually evil. Because if he is all-powerful and he does know all these things, maybe he's evil because he's not intervening. If you would intervene, but God isn't intervening, don't tell me your God cares, that he's loving, that he's all-powerful. Let's just come to a safe conclusion. Your God doesn't exist. That's powerful, right? This is why it is the number one question I get, not just from skeptics, but from Christians alike. And it's okay to face this question head on. And that's what we are going to do. I'm not going to get into a lot of philosophy here. I'm just going to get personal with you. And I'm going to share with you why God does not always intervene. Sometimes he does, but he doesn't always. C.S. Lewis, he was dealing with a similar problem. He married a woman. Anybody remember her name? Joy. Joy Davidson. They were married for four years, and she got really sick, and she died. She married him, and he married her out of convenience, but knowing that love is a verb, love followed, right? And they were loving each other. She died. She got sick. Sick and then died, usually the way it works. And he wrote a book. The book that he wrote was A Grief Observed. Anybody read that? A Grief Observed? It's a, it's a well-written book. In fact, when he wrote it in 1961, he didn't put his name on the book because he didn't want anybody to know that he was troubling, being troubled by this whole idea of loss. He wrote a different name, N.W. Clerk. And then he had his other contemporaries, other professors came up to him and said, hey, Clive, listen, you got to read this book. It's like exactly what you're going through. And so he did. He heeded the advice, and he read his own book over and over and over again. 
You see, for C.S. Lewis, it was not a problem whether God existed or not, but rather, is God, is God good? Because if God is good, why doesn't he intervene? Because he doesn't always intervene. So that's the challenge. But here's my question. What if your best doubts on whether or not God exists actually show that he does exist and that God is actually good? What if your best arguments saying God can't exist because God doesn't intervene, I don't see him anywhere, is actually going to be proof that he does exist and that he really is good. That's what I'm going to share with you here today, because this is a great objection that comes our way. So I have one point. Evil does exist, and it exists because God is good, and it is designed to push you and to thwart you towards the only one who can save you from the evil that you will find inside this world. Listen to this scripture in Proverbs 6, verse 14. Perversity is in man's heart, and he devises evil continually. He sows discord. The Bible says that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. You know, when I'm on the college campus, I'll say, how many people here would like to see God get rid of all the evil in the world? And the people that are listening, they raise their hands nice and high, and they say, yes, where is God? Why doesn't he get rid of all the evil in the world? And then I take it a step further, and I say, how many people would like to see God get rid of all the rapists and kidnappers and traffickers, all of these crazy people, people who like to fly planes into Twin Towers? How many people would like to see God get rid of all of these sorts of people? And all their hands are lifted up nice and high. And then I say, how many people? would like to see God get rid of everybody that has ever told one lie. And there's crickets. How many people would like to see God get rid of everybody that has ever stolen one thing? How many people would like to see God get rid of all the people that have dishonored their parents just one time? Right? You don't need to murder 10 people to be a murderer. You don't need to steal 10 things to be a thief. You don't need to tell a hundred lies to be a liar. We think evil is really high and really far out there. But we fail to recognize that God has a longer list of what is evil than you and I. In fact, he says lying lips are an abomination to him. And then he goes on to say that no liar will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of evil out there, but what we must recognize that if God were to come at 12 o'clock tonight to get rid of all the evil in the world, where would you be at 12.01? We fail to recognize that we ourselves are holding the smoking gun, that we are pointing the finger at other people. He is evil. She is evil. He did an atrocious thing. But then there's three fingers pointing back at me. Have we ever paused to consider that we ourselves have been the source of evil 
to somebody else, when we lied to them, when we stole from them. Why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? We go back to our original text. Because there is going to be a day where God will quarantine evil. But remember, God doesn't just destroy evil. He doesn't just, I mean, you send evil to hell? Evildoers, God will judge, Scripture says. And remember our text. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Only a Christian can state there is evil in the world. Remember our earlier message. If you're an atheist, there's no God, no authoritative figure in their minds and their opinions, and they're wrong. But there's nobody telling them what is right and wrong or good or bad. In fact, Sam Harris, he said, he's a famous atheist. He said, if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of either abuse on women or religion, I would not hesitate to get rid of religion. Richard Dawkins, the Pope of atheism, he said, there is no purpose to life. There is no evil and there is no good. We are merely dancing to our own DNA. You see, an atheist, rightfully so, bring to its logical conclusion, will say there really is no such thing as evil. We're just making decisions. You make a decision to love and nurture your child. This person makes a decision to not feed their child. Neither decision is correct in the eyes of the atheist. But in the eyes of the Christian, we know because Scripture has allowed us to know these things. Proverbs 20, verse 6. It says, most men will each proclaim their own goodness. What does that mean? That means if I go up to you and I say, would you consider yourself to be a good person? You might respond with, yeah, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. And I go, really, why? Why are you a good guy? And then you begin to compare yourself to somebody else. You go, I'm pretty good. I'm not like that guy. That guy, he's smoking marijuana. He's doing drugs. So I go up to that guy who's doing drugs. And I say, you know, you shouldn't be doing drugs. That's not a good thing. It's not good for your body. And he goes, yeah, but I'm still a good person. I'm not like that guy. That guy beats up his family. So I go up to the guy who beats up his family and I says, would you consider yourself to be a good person? He says, yeah, I'm a good person. I'm not like that guy. That guy murders people. So I go up to the murderer very carefully. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? He says, yes, I'm a good person. I'm not like Adolf Hitler or Stalin or Mao, people who have killed more than 100 million people over the course of their life. Adolf Hitler alone killed 10 million blacks, Jews, gypsies, and Christians. He cleaned up Nazi Germany. In fact, Adolf Hitler thought he was doing the world a favor. We as a society here in America, we thought Nazi Germany was wrong. Adolf Hitler was wrong. So what did we do? We sent our troops to go stop him. Were we right in sending troops to go stop him? Yes. Good answer. You have good parents. Yes. Do we have the perfect society? 
No, we don't, do we? Wait a minute. Does a perfect society exist down here on earth? No. But yet somehow intuitively, you know what a perfect society is, don't you? Because it's ingrained and given on your conscience. You know it. Our society said their society was wrong, so we went to stop them. Remember, Richard Dawkins, the Pope of atheism, says there is no evil and there is no good. But yet then why do you complain? And he did. He said God is the most evil, atrocious individual that can ever exist. Come on. You can't have your cake and eat it as well. Charles Darwin, that great monkey of a man, he said, the question whether there exists a creator and ruler of the universe, well, this has been answered in the affirmative by the highest intellects that have ever lived. Does evil disprove God? No. Because there is evil, there must be God. Think about it like this. Can I borrow your stick? Thank you. That's a pretty straight stick, isn't it? Is it an absolutely perfectly straight stick? You must have very terrible eyesight. Is this an absolutely perfectly straight stick? It's not, is it? How do we know? Because we know that which is straight. And we can't say something is crooked unless we know that which is straight. And that's what C.S. Lewis said. We can't call a crooked line crooked unless we know that which is straight. What was his point? We can't say something is evil unless we know that which is good. And you cannot have evil without good. And you cannot have good without God. If there is no God, then there is no difference between a man who kills his dog to feed his starving son or a man who kills his son to feed his starving dog. But there is a God. He is alive. He is powerful. He cares about right and wrong. In fact, every idle word a man speaks, he'll have to give an account thereof on the day of judgment. I'm going to tell you two different stories, and I want you to tell me which is the good man and which is the bad man, okay? Here's the first story. The first story is told of a successful man who at the peak of his life, with everything to lose, he flew thousands of miles only to plunge a knife into the chest of a little girl while she was sleeping. The second man was sitting on a bus, and a blind man went to get on that bus, and he gave up his seat so that blind man could have a seat. Who's the good man and who's the bad man? They're both good. Mm, thank you for playing. You've lost. The one in the bus is what? The good man. And the first guy who plunged a knife into the chest of the little girl while she was sleeping is bad, right? Let me give you a little bit more information. The man that was on the bus that gave up his seat was the bus driver. Uh-oh, we have a problem. 
with five little words, the man was the bus driver, we have a whole paradigm shift and we have more information. Now, the man who plunged the knife into the chest of the little girl while she slept, that man was a world-renowned heart surgeon. And on his own dime, he flew from Germany to upstate New York. He performed a life-saving surgery with his own nurses, with his own doctors, with his own money, and he saved that little girl's life. Now, which one's good and which one's bad? A little bit more information gives us a little bit more of a better decision to be made. You see, we here on earth don't have all of the information. We may be wondering what is going on. Why doesn't God intervene? Well, one day he will intervene. You see, evil is still evil to God. And so atrocious was evil to God that he did something about it. What did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He always did that which was pleasing to his father. He never lied. He never stole. He never committed adultery. He never blasphemed. And he was unjustly condemned to die on a Roman cross. Why do the innocent suffer? Answer, well, ultimately, none of us are innocent and in that we've all broken God's law. But there was one who was supremely innocent, Christ. Now, sometimes things happen to us that we don't deserve. We live in a crippled world. Why? Because we crippled it. And God has given us moral freedom that we can choose to do things that are disobeying to him or honoring to him. And every time we sin, we are doing things that are dishonoring to him. God is good. How do we know? We look to the cross. You never need to doubt whether or not God is truly love. First John 4, 6, God is is love. God is love. And God demonstrated his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, still sinning, he died for us. Why doesn't God get rid of all the evil in the world? Our text tells us he is giving people a chance to repent. Repent, it's a weird, archaic word. It's the Greek word mentanoia. It means to change your mind, literally. You must change your mind about your thoughts on who God is, on how he should deal with mankind, on what your outcome should be in your eyes. And instead, you think God's thoughts after him, what God says is ultimately true. All of God's judgments are just and true. Everything he does is yes and amen. This is God. So, because God is kind, he's given man the gift of moral freedom. And moral freedom simply means that you have the ability to choose between right and wrong. And God could have created you. Have you seen those Kathy dolls where they have a, a string on their back and you pull the string and when you pull the string, it does a little, makes a, maybe it says something. Like, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then when it runs out of string, it goes, and then you got to pull the string again. You see, God could have made us like that. I could have 
locked my kids in a closet until they're 18 years old and then sent them out in the world. But I love them too much. I want to give them some moral freedom to make decisions, even though they may make some bad decisions. Well, God is the same way. He gives us moral freedom to choose things that are according to our nature, and we do exactly what is according to our nature. Remember, God cannot punish evil, only evildoers. Evil is not a physical substance, right? It's not this black, diabolical goo that's floating around the universe, and then it attaches onto us, and then it forces us to do something evil. No, each person does wrong and sins when he's lured away by his own evil heart, our own evil desires. And when we're tempted, we don't say, well, God tempted me, because God himself does not tempt anyone. That's what the scriptures tell us. So why hasn't God dealt with all the evil in the world? Because of you. And you, and you, and others. He's given people a chance to repent. This is the importance of the message. Until that day when he quarantines evil, when he gets rid of it, he's given people a chance to get right with him. So what do I tell the atheist? I say, atheist, listen, I'm your best friend here today because I'm telling you the truth. God is the only one who can truly condemn you. He can reach into that dark cavern of your heart and turn your heart towards him if you humble yourself, if you repent of your ways, if you seek, your, seek his face. What a good deal. He's supremely innocent, and we're supremely not. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. We never say, God, get rid of all the evil in the world and start with me. We write letters, and we accuse God of wrongdoing, and we raise our fists, and we snuff our nose. We say, if God is real, you have him appear. If God is real, you have him answer to my beck and call. We wouldn't do that with the Queen of England, would we? We wouldn't do it the President of the United States. Whether you agree or disagree with the President, you wouldn't say, if the President wants to meet with me, you have him come here. I have time between this hour and this hour. You would have a level of respect, whether you agreed with his policies or not. We wouldn't do that with the Queen of England, yet we do that with God. May God have mercy on the way we approach him. Life is quick. One final point. We must remember that the Bible does not tell us everything we want to know about God, but it certainly tells us everything we need to know about God. Everything you will ever need to know about God is found in Scripture. And therefore, let him who boasts boast in this, that they know me, that they understand me. And we're brought to a text, Romans 8, 28. We have it highlighted, we have it underlined, perhaps, and some of us even have it memorized. And we know, we're convinced, that all things are working together for good. Some things, most things, nope. It says everything. So as a Christian, when something comes your way and you, you might be a little confused, maybe even disheartened, 
and you're persuaded everything's against you. All you got to do is look back at the cross and you realize, listen, if God is willing to die for me, you tell me what he wouldn't do for me. And if he's going to have me go through this, then it's good for me to go through this. For God's glory, I go through difficult things. And I take it a step further as I've shared with my kids. And I understand that there are evil, dastardly deeds that take place to us and through us to other people. But if Romans 8.28 is truly true, that all things are working together for our good, then the logical conclusion is that everything that will ever happen in your life is a stepping stone designed for you to take to bring God glory. So you could, in one sense, say there's no such thing as bad news. My spouse's infidelity, my wayward child's rebellion, the losing of my job, the losing of my eyesight, that God is big enough to prevent these things from happening, but he chooses not to do so. But in reality, it's not because he's so busy. He's actually looking at everything. He has the hair on my head numbered. He's intimately equated with all of my ways. He knows my rising up and my sitting down. He understands my thoughts from afar. He understands my far-off thoughts. He understands what I don't even understand. When I think nobody knows what I'm going through, God says, I know you. And that word know is the same word that Adam knew his wife and conceived a child. It speaks of intimacy. No such thing as bad news. And I understand that there's bad news. But let's have a lofty view of God and his sovereignty, that God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. He answers to no one. He doesn't care what we think about it. God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. It's okay for God to be God. R.C. Sproul said that there's not one maverick molecule, one maverick molecule in the entire universe. He knows everything that is happening and going on. All things are working together for good. So I say, Christian, I don't ultimately know why you're going through what you're going through or why that happened to you when that happened to you. But I know that God is big enough and he has intervened. He is intervening, and all things are working together for your good and for his glory. Does anybody have any questions concerning what I just shared? Because undoubtedly, as I said, this is the most popular prevalent question, objection that we get out on the street, and I want to give you a chance. Let's just work through it as a family. How is my answer usually received? Well, there's been a, I was once asked the question, how many people have you led to the Lord? And my answer, all of them. And what God does with them at that point is up to him, right? It's not my job to save people because I can't save anybody. I just want to be just and true with the message. And ultimately the answer, why evil exists, here's the ultimate answer. For reasons known only to God. He allows evil to exist at the same time as him. How marvelous is God to do so, right? Um, some people receive it, like that woman, that 29-year-old woman at Long Beach State, and it didn't take much for her to get to that place, right? God has always had his remnant, his people, who will always uh, eventually bow to the dictates of God. 
And then there will be some people that will reject and continually reject. And there has been an old adage, a maxim pun that goes like this. The same sun that softens the clay, the same sun that hardens the clay, softens the wax. So it could be the same message, and somebody's heart can get maybe a little bit hardened, and somebody else's heart can get a little bit more softened. So it's not our job to be uh, fruitful, but faithful. But even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Yes, I see that beautiful hand in the front. She says, I can save people. If somebody's drowning, I just jump in the water and I get them. You get an A on that. And that's, she actually raises up a very good point. I don't know if she realizes it or not. There is a crime called depraved indifference. That if you're sitting perhaps in a chair at a pool at a hotel and a little toddler stumbles into the pool area, falls into the pool and drowns, and you don't do anything about it, you could be charged with a crime. It's called depraved indifference. Depraved means lowly. Indifference means you couldn't care less. And sadly, that is the state of so many people that come to church. They don't care very much about the ungodly, and they don't do very much to share the saving life of Christ with those people, as Major Ian Thomas said. Anybody else? One final question? Yes, and then we'll close it up. Yes, ma'am. That's a good question. Does God cause certain things to happen, or does he allow certain things to happen? In Isaiah 41, it says that God causes calamity. That's an interesting word. Uh, there was a time in, when the children of Israel were going through Egypt, and as they're going on into the promised land and they're wandering in the wilderness, there was many a time where he caused confusion to overcome a group of people where the children of Israel were able to even overcome different groups of people. So God can cause confusion. He can, he can cause calamity. God is not, however, the author of evil. He's not. There's a confusion on what that means there in Isaiah 41, because the word there in the New King James and even the King James is the word evil, that God causes evil. But no, God does not cause evil in that same sense, because he's not the author of evil. But he certainly uses evil, and he allows certain people to do certain things to cause him to be glorified. Like, why did God—I was talking with a gentleman earlier at dinner today, and he said, um, if God knew—something to the extent of if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he have Satan inside the garden? Did God put Satan inside the garden? And I said this, listen, yes. We currently are in plan A with God's redemptive story in history. There is no plan B. When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't saying, oh, no, what am I going to do? God has never said, oops. It's not in his vocabulary. When Judas sinned, it was foreshadowed and prophesied that Judas would sin that he would betray the Son of Man with a kiss, and that's not what lips are designed for. And it says, it would have been better if he was never born at all. The most atrocious evil act ever to take place was the killing of the Son of God, and at the same time, it was the most beautiful, loving act that has ever taken place. 
Does God cause things to happen for his glory? We're starting to get above my pay grade. And I would say, yes, God does whatever he wants to do. God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. And all things are working together after the counsel of his will. Everything is working together for good. Now, I've got questions and I've got thoughts and I've got wonderings myself in the midst of all of that. And I know that Satan is not the rival of God, right? When Satan fell out of heaven in Isaiah chapter 14 at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, God wasn't moved. He didn't blink. He wasn't pacing back and forth and there was no sweat on his brow. And Satan serves the purpose for which God has ultimately designed him for. And I just don't get it. But I trust God to be in control. Father, we thank you that you are good. And all the things that you do are good. And that you orchestrate all things together for your good and for your glory and for our good. God, may you do what you once again deserve to receive and do, and that is to receive praise and honor due to your name. For worthy is the Lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. Thank you, Father, for these dear people. May the questions continue, and may the questions ultimately lead us towards Christ. Because if we're not arguing towards the gospel, towards grace, and towards the cross, well, then we're just arguing, and God forbid. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.